We're going to be in John chapter 8 today. We're going to be finishing uh, a very Jerry Springer kind of an argument that Jesus has been in. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you kind of, you've heard the parts of this. Uh, I'll give you a chance to find John chapter 8 in your Bible. Um, Anybody else in here have a bad memory? I have a bad memory. Uh, more than having a bad memory, I have ADHD, which is not really a memory problem. I just lose focus on things. It's kind of like the things that I'm holding in my memory, I just sort of lose quickly. Here's one that happens to me all the time. You tell me if this happens to you. Um, you get a text message or an email. Uh, it shows up on your phone and you're like, oh, I need to see that. But it's really too important to answer right then. And so I, you know what I say. I say, well, I'm going to respond to that later because it's really important. I want to give it my time. I want to give it my energy and I put it away. Uh, and then, like, I don't know, six months goes by, and then you see the text. And you're like, oh my gosh, I never responded to that thing. Not because you ignored it, not because it wasn't important to you, but it just like slips off the cracker. Anybody else? Your cracker is just full. It slips off. It, it, I can think of probably a dozen of you this week. You've called me. You've texted me. I'm like, yeah, I'll get back to you. I didn't. Uh, I don't hate you. I just, I'm, I'm an idiot is the best I've got. Sometimes I forget things and they just kind of slip off. But uh, social media being what it is, uh, my favorite thing is uh, Facebook memories where it like brings up the memories of the past. My, my photo album does the same thing, uh, which is weird that Google will watch my life unfold through photographs. And then it's like on this day, 15 years ago, and it's this whole like memory collage of videos of like my kids growing up. It always makes moms and dads cry. It's like my baby used to be so innocent. Uh, and, and so I like, I like the photos, memories. I like Facebook memories. And so I'll go, I'll be reading through my Facebook memories sometimes. Maybe you do this. And I'll see a picture. It's like it was on this day eight years ago. I was in this location. I was like, "Oh, that's cool. That's a good memory. I like that." And then I'll see this other one. It's like so and so was, you know, talking to me. It's like, "Oh, I haven't seen them in a while." Or that person has since passed away. And so it's like this conversation, this time capsule is like, you know, ten years old, reminding you of someone that you hadn't thought about in a while. Those are those are fun. Uh, but my favorite one so far or whenever I'm looking through the memories and it will be a conversation that I never responded to, just like the text messages. And I get to respond to it now, 10 years later, answering the question like, well, I'm at home now. Uh, you can come by anytime you want, stuff like that. Um, what I've begun doing is I will insert, now that I know that Facebook is remembering it, I will insert jokes that I won't finish for another year or two years or three years. Because I've really, I've gotten where I enjoy this long form joke where you say knock, knock, and four years later, you have finished the knock-knock joke. And it's just, it's so satisfying. Uh, I don't, maybe I'm the only one, but I I really, I like, because I did forget, but I like being able to bring it back. There's something poetically right about it completing its full arc, even though it took longer than maybe they expected. They just want to know if I was available for game night. And I'm like, knock-knock, six years later, I'll let you know. Um, My kids will tell you, uh, that they really, uh, they, they want me to be a, a person that follows through on my word, follows through on my promises. In fact, uh, because I'm, I'm raising young men, I tell them, like, okay, to be a man, you have to be a man of your word. Whatever you say, you have to do. You follow through on your commitment, son. I say things like that, but that phrase, man of your word, is said a lot in my house, and it's sometimes repeated back to me, which is always fun uh, when your children are reminding you of the thing that you were teaching them, like, Dad, you're a man of your word. You have to do that thing. And usually, it's not something that I've forgotten. What is usually the case, because we're talking children, especially when my oldest one was younger, um, what is usually the case is I will make a statement like, hey, we're going to go... 
I don't know where we're going to go. We're going to go to Houston this weekend. Yes, but it's Monday when I've said it. And by Wednesday, because children have a weird sense of time, they're like, you promised we were going to go to Houston. You have to be a man of your word. I'm like, well, son, it, like the weekend isn't here yet. You know, it was the time is a weird thing for children. It's always good, though, as a parent, by the way to be a man or a woman of your word. And if you do make a promise to follow through on it, but very often with my children, it's like a, it's more of a reminding them that not as much time has passed as you think. I'm still on track with the plan. I said, I said we were going to solve that this weekend. We were going to go to Houston this weekend, but it's Thursday, son. Oh, I didn't know what Thursday was. How many more sleeps do we have? And so we usually count the number of sleeps before a thing is about to happen. Um, today, we are finishing a conversation that Jesus has been having. If you've been here for the last two weeks, it's week three of the conversation for us, but it's just one sitting for Jesus. And where he's going to land today is that God is really good at fulfilling his promises. Is God the kind of God that will promise to take you to Houston this weekend and then forget about you and go do another thing and never apologize for it? Or is he the kind of God that will make sure that he follows through on his promises no matter how long it takes? What Jesus will do in this conversation is he's talking to these people and he's going to remind them of promises that were made to this people group 2,000 years before and how God is still faithful to it. Do you believe that God is good on his word. Is God a man of his word? It's a, it's a funny thing that I taught my kids that, and then uh, Maverick City Worship actually made a worship song called You're a Man of Your Word. It's, I think it's called Man of Your Word. It's kind of weird that it's a worship song, but it's, it's a good phrase. God is a God who follows through on his promises. Has that been your experience? Maybe, maybe this morning you're kind of like, it's Thursday, and you thought it should have been the weekend. It feels like it should be the weekend right now. Maybe maybe you just need to be reminded that God is still working it out, and, and you can have faith in that. Maybe you just need to be told some promises that God has made. You've never been told them. I don't know. Um, let's look at it together. We're in John. We're in chapter 8. Uh, we are going to pick up in verse 48. And we'll finish the chapter uh, today. And this argument that keeps happening, just, just to set the stage real quick, what, what's been going on for the last few weeks is Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the people, most of the people, are patiently listening, just like I'm teaching in this worship room, and you, most of you, are patiently listening. Um, but every now and then, because it's Jesus, people got stuff they want to argue with him about, and so they just walk into the middle of the teaching, and they start arguing with him. I'm just going to tell you right now, I would prefer you didn't do that, okay? Uh, I don't know if I can stay on my toes as well as Jesus does, but he masterfully talks to the, uh, the arguers, the, the people who are trying to make a scene, and to the crowd who's just like, listen, I just want to learn something. Um, and he's handled it very well, going back and forth, handling their criticisms. Uh, Jesus has said that he is the, the light. He can be trusted. He can see better than us, and he will light our way because you and I, we live in a world that has darkness. Jesus says that he came to bring truth and that the truth will set us free. That is good. That's in this conversation. And each time, the people who are wanting to argue with him, they, the Pharisees, the scribes, they, um, they, just, they just keep jabbing at him. And so verse 48 is one of those jabs, very Jerry Springerish. Uh, Jesus has just finished a really big moment that we covered last week, and it says that the Jews, that is the, the Pharisees, answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Are we not right, the Pharisee said, that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Now, who's going to raise their hand and be like, ah, you got me? (laughs) All this time, I've been a Samaritan and I have a demon. Of course, like they, that is such a, a, um, it is not a fair question. It is meant to be a jab. It's kind of in like a mean girls moment. If you've ever watched that movie or that play or you went to middle school, um, you know uh, what it's like to like have someone ask a question in a very loud way for really for the benefit of everybody else. They're not actually asking Jesus, excuse me, sir, are you a demon? Uh, privately, like, can we test you out a little bit? They're saying this because they want the crowd to get a rise out of him. Uh, or for him to, to get flustered. Um, they, they said, are you a Samaritan or you have a demon? I don't know if I need to explain the demon part. I think, I think you and I in modern culture are like, I think you work for the devil. Uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of the way to say that. You're demon-possessed, you know. Um, but Samaritan, that might need a little unpacking. Uh, the Samaritans, just insert, this, this may be helpful, insert any racial slur you want. Uh, and that's exactly what they were trying to do. They throw a racial slur at Jesus, and then they say you work for the devil, and they did this for the benefit of everybody else. What they hoped to happen is that Jesus would get mad and start yelling at them, or I don't know, get real defensive, or maybe he would cave and he would back away. Jesus is really good at handling stuff like this. His answer is, I don't have a demon. I honor my father. You you dishonor me. They decided to attack Jesus publicly. And uh, if if any of you took like you, you dig philosophy or you're a, you like debate or I don't know you want to be a lawyer and you want to get into like trial attorney stuff and argue people, there is a logical fallacy where if you can't stand up to the argument, you attack the person. It's called an ad hominem. To attack the person is to show that your position is weak. Jesus, multiple times in this conversation, he has laid out the plain truth of his claim, and they can't refute his claim. They can't refute his argument. So now they've begun attacking him. Maybe, maybe you find yourself in a moment where people just attack you. They just, they just say things about you because they can't really stand up to what you're saying. They, you're trying to, you go to a family member and you say, listen, X, Y, Z, it just, it really hurt my feelings and I prefer we didn't do this. And instead of apologizing, they're just like, you're an idiot. They just, they, they minimize you. They gaslight you. They kind of make you feel small. How, how can you handle it? Well, I think Jesus does a really masterful job right here because he could have fallen on the trap on either side of this and he stays right in the middle. Uh, Jesus does not chase the rabbit of whether or not he's demon possessed and, you know, whether or not he's a Samaritan. Like he doesn't pull out his birth certificate. He doesn't feel the need to. He could have chased the rabbit, but that's not the main point of what he's talking about. The ditch on the other side is that he could have, he could have just let the slander just linger. These people said an evil, wicked thing about him, um, and and he could have he could have uh, just let it sit there. He says his response is, "I don't have a demon, but I honor my father. You dishonor me." He calls them out for exactly what they've done. Maybe maybe if you have something important to say to someone, maybe if you're expecting a conversation to be difficult, or in your experience has been with that person, that conversation has been difficult, you can maybe kind of take some lesson from this. What Jesus does and what we could do is uh, follow this pattern, is say it plainly with simple terms. He has repeated himself over and over again about what God's plan has been, and he says it plainly with simple terms. Don't let the other person knock the conversation off the rails with what's called non sequiturs or things that don't follow. They have nothing to do with the argument. 
You, you might go to someone and say, listen, I just want to talk, you know, uh, last week, the way that you, you know, you treated me was inappropriate. And then they bring up something that happened last year. That's a non sequitur. It has nothing to do with the conversation right now. Jesus masterfully keeps the conversation on today's topic, today's point. Don't fall for the attacks. Jesus is verbally attacked in a public setting, and he doesn't lose his footing. He doesn't get nervous. He doesn't get flustered. If, if you find yourself getting knocked off balance, maybe just remind yourself, like, I, I know that's not true. It's not true. And then you get back to the conversation. Respond to slander with a simple response. Jesus is accused of being a demon. He's like, I'm not a demon. And then he carries on. He doesn't feel the need to explain any more than that. If, if I could just give you a little bit of advice for hard conversations, you're only responsible for your side of it. You're only responsible for what you're called to be obedient to. Let God handle the results. Just say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done and just let God handle whatever the results will be. Jesus stays right in the middle. Okay, so uh, they want to knock Jesus off balance. Jesus says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father. He continues, verse 50. He says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The first thing that Jesus starts with is like, look, I'm not here really to defend myself. I'm not here to tell you how great I am. I'm here to tell you how great God is. I'm not here to seek my glory. I'm here to seek his glory. And it turns out he is seeking my glory because he's the son of God. Jesus's response gives him a lot of freedom. He's not there to defend himself or to build himself up. You, if, if you are your main point, you are there to build yourself up. And to have someone attack you can knock you off balance because you have to defend that. You have to respond to every accusation. But if your purpose is to bring glory to the Father, you are free in that moment. Nobody can say anything to knock you off balance. Jesus has found that there's a weird kind of freedom in surrendering to that truth. Glory is a big topic uh, throughout Scripture. What is the purpose of your life? What, what is the purpose of God saving you? Those of us in here who are, are Christians, why did God save you? Well, it's because I'm a pretty great God, Jesse. That's why. Um, no, it's not. You didn't do anything to earn his respect. The Bible outlines it over and over and over again. The reason that God chooses to save anyone is to bring himself glory. He's worthy of his praise. He's made promises all through the Bible. And his ability to see his promises through to completion is to bring him glory. Here's, a, here's an honest question. Uh, take it um, diagnostically. Don't shout out your answers. Um, who... Or what uh, is your life bringing glory to? What, what does your life point its glory to? What is the point of your life? Or there, there are so many different ways and so many different things that people put their glory to. They, they want their life to, to make that other thing matter. Some people, it's work. It's their job. It's success. Those people will work until their knuckles are red, or I don't even know what that metaphor means. I made that up as I went. Uh, <laughs> they will work until they've got nothing left uh, to give and to provide for their family because they get the sense that I must glorify this job and I must make 
the value of my life point to this job. Some people, they point their glory, their life to their spouse or their partner. Um, I need to build this relationship. This relationship is where I get my significance from. And I need to bolster this. And they hold it with like a, a, a almost a nervous hand. Uh, people who do that, um, when that relationship falters or when it goes away, they rush into the next relationship. Because it's that relationship that's going to give them significance. It's that relationship, that, that man, that woman, that's going to give them security. And they're going to find dissatisfaction, ultimately. People may glory in their children. I, I, I see a lot of this, but it may be because I have children, so I'm around a lot of parents. But you, you, if you go to a basketball game, soccer game, football game, it is very easy to see the parents who are just like, yeah, my kid made the shot. My kid didn't make the shot. And then the parents who are putting their glory in their children, they worship their children. They worship their children's performance. They micromanage their child's day-to-day activities. They socio-engineer all their friend circles, and they try to control all of this, and every little falter really knocks them off balance. You can find glory in your children, your spouse, your job. You can find glory in yourself. It's all about me. I have to be the best. I have to be the most. And Jesus' response is, I'm not here to glorify myself. My job, Jesus says, is to glorify the Father. And he found freedom in that. You, and we said this last week, will find the most freedom if you surrender your life to Jesus, to glorify God. We are most fulfilled when we point our lives to the glory of God alone, to point everything we've got to God. John Piper, he, he wrote about what it means to like try to, try to evangelize, try to share our faith, try to, try to help someone be saved. What is the point of, of that? Here's how John Piper says it. He says, our evangelistic task is not to persuade people that the gospel was made for their felt needs, but that they were made for the soul satisfying glory of God in the gospel. You and I need to get the order sequence of events properly. It is, it is the most satisfying thing you will ever do is to surrender your life to a, a life that glorifies God. It's in fact what you were designed for. You will find the most peace in your life surrendered to that truth. You'll find the most satisfaction in your life surrendered to that truth. And so Jesus, as he was having this conversation, he ended that with saying, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, here's, here's where Jesus brings everything back. They, they have all of their arguments. They're trying to knock him off the rails. And Jesus brings it back. He says, I'm talking to you about my word. I'm talking about following me. And you won't see death. You won't see, what's another word for that? Corruption. You, you, won't, you won't taste the pain that that is. Now, you and I live in a world that, we have funerals. We have, we have death around us. And so we still see the effects of sin. We still see the effects of that. But as far as it having its grip on us, those of us who follow God's word, Jesus's word, according to Jesus, will never see death. This is, um, if you're keeping up with the conversation, Jesus bringing it back to the rails as he did in verse 12 and verse 31 of the same chapter. The people who heard him say this, they lose their mind. They can't, they can't handle this. Who do you think you are? And they say, here's, here's how they say it. Some of you heard the podcast where it's like every episode you have this very famous preacher. Who do you think you are? I think that that's kind of the mode that they had here. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, ah, now we know you have a demon. We know you work for the devil. You proved it. Uh, Abraham died 
as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. We know that all of these great people died. And then they asked the question, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are you greater than Abraham and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are, Jesus? They think that they have him. They think, they think that they, they, can, they can pin him down and, and ask him. The question that they ask is, are you greater than our father Abraham? That is a valid question, uh, but they ask it rhetorically. What if they actually paused and let Jesus answer? Excuse me, Jesus, um, it appears to me that you think you're better than everybody else in the Bible. Is that true? And just listen to Jesus explain it. But they, they ask it in a way to really put him down. What we said last week about truth is that you don't have to defend it. You can just let it loose. Jesus doesn't feel the need right now to really defend himself very much. He doesn't feel the need to explain to him how uh, the incarnation of God in the flesh happened and how the virgin birth happened, or to explain any theological, well, if God is good, how can there be evil? He doesn't feel the need to explain it. He just responds with very basic truths and lets them live. Here's, here's his response, verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, I'm not here to brag about myself. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Of him you say, he is our God. You know the person you're saying you worship? He's really wanting me to tell you this. The one that you think that your life is built on, of course you think you're following God. He's the one who is sending this message through me. He says, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you guys. But I do know him, and I keep his word. I like the little jab right there. I'd be a liar like you. You're a bunch of liars. What is it? We've been trying to ask this question. What is it that Jesus can see that we can't see? He seems to know the path forward. How is it that he can see this? What is it that Jesus can see that you can't see, that I can't see? Um, There are at least three things here. Jesus knows God, knows him well. He hung out with God. He, he and the Father are one. He knows God. Therefore, he can speak on God's behalf. Uh, Jesus seems to think that he's a messenger sent from God to tell us the ways of God. Jesus knows God. Jesus also knows where he's from and where he's going. He says, I am from the Father. I know where I'm going. Um, and then he's willing to bring that truth to those of us who live in this darkness. He's willing to tell you and me the truth about who God is and what a life of hope could look like, what a life, what life could look like rather than death. Some of us need more life. I said earlier, you have a friend, a family member that you want to be praying for? You know, you know what they need and what you think that they need is life. Where there's hopelessness, could there be life? Where there's darkness, could there be life? Jesus knows What is it that Jesus knows? Jesus knows that God is offering freedom to the captives, even the captives that don't even know that they're trapped, even the captives who don't even know that they're in bondage. Jesus is begging, I am bringing you to freedom. Jesus knows the truth that we need to know. So here's here's where he brings it. He's going to rewind their minds all the way back to the beginning of their faith. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Can we just agree that that escalated really fast? They've had multiple arguments at this moment. And Jesus just says the phrase, before Abraham, I am. And they're ready to murder this man on sight. They're picking up rocks. They're locked and loaded. And Jesus slips out through the crowd. To you and me, like we're pretty far from this moment. That seems like it just got out of hand, like for no reason at all. Can we agree? That's weird, right? Hey, uh, before, before Abraham, I am. No, oh, dude, you're dead. Okay, so we're, we're going to go at it. Why is this such a big deal? What is going on here that, that they seem to understand that we don't? Let's, let's unpack it, first of all. When God revealed his name to Moses, he says, you go tell the Pharaoh, I am sent you. He said that his name is I am. When we say the name of God as Yahweh, that is the Hebrew word, I am. When Jesus says this sentence, which is strangely configured to have the I am at the end, he is claiming the name of Yahweh as his own name. Before Abraham was, I'm Yahweh, I am. That is why they lost their mind. It's at a weird time in Jewish history. Um, they're at a time where you wouldn't even say that word out loud, even though it was written in the Bible. Um, when they would get to the word Yahweh, they would change it to, uh, in Hebrew, they would say Hashem, which means the name, or they might say Adonai, which means Lord, but they wouldn't say the word. Imagine, I don't know if we have an equivalent. It's just a word you won't say. Actually, I can't think of some equivalents. I just won't share any of them right now. Uh, it's a word that you won't say, and as you read it, you need to say something, and so you substitute the word with something a little less dangerous. They were at a stage, and I don't, I, I can guess, but it's not part of this message. I don't, I don't want to get into it, but they just stopped using the name Yahweh just in case that was what was causing all the problems that people were using it wrong. And so for Jesus to even utter it, it would be like you uttering the like most impossible phrase you could think of and just expecting the crowd to be okay. And he claims the name Yahweh. More than that, He's making a pretty big claim here. Not only does he know Abraham firsthand, Jesus, anybody who says, by the way, uh, listen, your faith, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you ever heard someone say that? Uh, I see a lot of videos like, let me tell you why your faith doesn't make any sense because Jesus never claimed to be God, but you worship him as God. Those people have never read the gospel of John. He says it multiple times. In fact, Jesus, out of his mouth, has at least seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where he claims the name of Yahweh as his own name. He will literally say in just a few chapters, I and the Father are one. This idea that Jesus never claimed to be God really just isn't true at all. He's claiming it here. Not only is he claiming it, he's claiming to be on a first name basis with Abraham. He knew Abraham. Here's what he said just a second ago. He said, uh, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What is he talking about right here? Let me, let's, let me take us on a little history jaunt uh, and see if we might learn something uh, that helps us today. Jesus is making these statements. We're reading John chapter 8. This occurred about 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? So we're in 2024, roughly 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus is making this claim. When he's making this claim, he's talking about Abraham, which lived roughly 2,000 years before that moment. 
Okay, And so Jesus is talking about having a conversation with Abraham 2,000 years before the moment that he's talking to them. Just to put this in, in something that I think we can understand, um, as old as the people of the Bible feel to you, like ever how far away you think Jesus walking the earth feels to you and Peter and Paul walking there feels to you, that's how long ago Abraham feels to the time of Jesus. That's how, that's how long this history goes. Um, Abraham is a guy that 2,000 years before Jesus is uh, telling this, um, is he was minding his own business, and a voice from heaven calls him out, forms a people out of him, calls his family out, and he leaves his homeland to start following Yahweh for the first time. He has no history of following Yahweh. There's no books telling you how to follow Yahweh. There's no Bible. It's just him and God. And like, I don't know what kind of God this is. I'm going to trust him. God promises I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to make a people out of you. Abraham's thumbs up. He loves this idea. And he kind of rolls with it for a few years. Uh, and then, you know, just to quickly uh, get this forward, he decides to help God out a little bit. God says, no, I didn't need your help. That's not the kid that I was talking about. Later, Abraham has a son named Isaac, the promised son of God. This is God following through on his promises about a decade or two after making them. That is beautiful. Abraham is celebrating. In Genesis chapter 22, there's this really weird moment where God tells Abraham, like, I need you to follow me on something. Abraham's like, yeah, whatever you got, God, I will follow you. Okay, that son I gave you, um, we're going to go sacrifice him. Now, you and I, that sounds really weird, right? Human sacrifice, that's not a thing. God would never do human sacrifice. Just remember, Abraham doesn't know anything about God yet. He doesn't know what kind of God God is. Maybe he's a human sacrifice kind of God. There are other gods that the people were worshiping that were human sacrifice gods. All he knows is that his entire life is built upon following the truths of Yahweh in faith, in figuring out what happened. So he takes Isaac. Imagine that conversation. Isaac's like 14. He's like, son, um, grab some sticks. Let's go up that hill. Let's see what happens. Uh, they, they go to this place that God leads them. It's this mountain called Mount Moriah. Many of you know what, where the story goes. At the very last second, Abraham's like, I don't know what to do except follow Yahweh. He's about to sacrifice his only son. God says, stop. That's not really what the plan is. I see that you trust me. He provides a ram for uh, for Abraham to sacrifice instead of Isaac. Uh, here's, here's what it says in chapter 22. Verse 14, immediately after that, when I'm sure Isaac, he has some post-traumatic stress disorder, poor guy. Uh, I'm sure Abraham is kind of shaky at this moment. God just showed up. This is the God who follows through on his promises. I can't believe he's going back on his promises. And then he comes through still. Abraham's like, wow. Here's what he says in verse 14. Chapter 22, verse 14 says, so Abraham called the name of that place, the place where this all happened. He says, the Lord will provide. That's what he calls it. What a great name. The Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Another translation, there's a little footnote in my Bible, says another way to translate that out of Hebrew is, on the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. On the mount of the Lord, he will provide. Or on the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. Now, let me, let me put a very big poetic bow on all of this. The location that Abraham and Isaac are having this conversation 
is a place called Mount Moriah. Fast forward 500 years, uh, a man named Solomon builds a temple to God on that same mountain in that same location. Fast forward a little while longer, that temple is destroyed. Another one is built in its place. Fast forward to the generation before Jesus, a man named Herod comes and renovates that temple in that very same location. And fast forward to the day of Jesus, Jesus is having this conversation with these Pharisees in the same location that Abraham and Isaac were. And what is he talking about whenever Abraham saw his day, he's saying, I was there. I was in this moment. The very fact that Jesus is able to have this conversation with these Pharisees in that temple is because God is good on his promise even 2,000 years later. Here's, here's what he says in Genesis uh, 22 verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Raise your hand in here if you are a descendant of Abraham. Every now and then I say that. There's a, there's a few of us. Uh, there's, okay, let me be more specific. You are ethnically a Jew. <laughs> like, most of us in here are Gentiles. That's the point. I, I said that one time, and I had this lady. She's like, I'm Jewish. I was like, but really, though? She's like, no, I was born Jewish. My, my people. Like, she, she could prove it. It's like, okay, okay. But most of us, because we're in Texas, we're Gentiles. When he says he's going to bless all the nations through Abraham's son, he's talking about you. Me and everybody we've ever met that's not Jewish. He's talking about God being a God of promises that can see this through all the way to completion. And as Jesus is having this conversation, he's having it 2,000 years after the fact, like, look, here we are. Look how good God is at coming through on his promises. It was me who had that conversation with him. What, what, is, what is the point of this history journey? Let me land the plane with you. God is a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. How poetic is this? 2,000 years before Jesus is making this uh, conversation, a promise is made. Jesus is making the statement as, hey, God's really good at keeping his promises. On this mount, he shall provide. It is on the same mountain, by the way, that Jesus will be crucified within a year of having that conversation, that the same God who spared Abraham's son was not willing to spare his own son and let his own son be sacrificed on that same mountain for the nations, for people like me and you who have no business knowing who God is, who have no business knowing what hope is, who have no business knowing what light and truth and freedom are, we don't deserve any of it. And yet if you're here, you're basing your faith off of a promise that God made 2,000 years ago on the cross. Is he a promise-keeping God? Well, Jesus is having a conversation 2,000 years after the fact that he is a promise-keeping God. There's just something poetic in this. Abraham rejoiced when God spared his son and named the place the Lord will provide. 2,000 years later, the son of God arrives at the same place and is not himself spared and provides himself as the sacrifice. And then 2,000 years after the cross, you and I sit in this room either rejoicing that the Lord provided for us or questioning his lordship. What is it? Do you know that God is a God that comes through on his promises? You may just need to be reminded. See, some of us, we may feel like, we may feel like that child on Thursday, but you promised on the weekend. God promised he's good. 
God promised that he will provide a way. God promised that Jesus is sufficient. You can bank on God's promises, even though they are 2,000 years old. You can trust him. If nothing else, if, if, you're, if you're in here, you're like, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in any of this stuff. I, I'm just telling you, the Bible is the most poetic and literarily beautiful book ever that this many years after the fact that these stories can match up and mirror in that way. I just want to encourage you this morning, whether you need to hear it or you just need to be reminded of it, God's promises, he will see them through to completion. He promises that he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through you. You are a part of the nations that you will find your blessing in Jesus. Surrender to him. Trust his word. You'll have life. You'll have light. You take a step in darkness. I don't know what to do. I'm coming up on a decision. I don't know the next thing to do. Jesus' promise are that he is light. Just follow him and trust him with the results. Let me pray for us. Jesus got out of that conversation. They wanted to kill him at the end. Um, about a year later after that, uh, they did kill him for what he was saying. They couldn't stand him for what he was saying. And scripture says that that death was something he chose willingly because it was the required payment for the sin that you and I would eventually carry. If you're a follower of Jesus, your debt has been fully paid to the Lord. You can be free, you can have peace, you can have life. And I would just encourage you to lean into that. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're carrying that burden on your own, you're like, I, I just can't afford it. Uh, I would ask you to trust the God who made the promise that his son's death on the cross was sufficient. The one that you owe the debt to is the one who made the promise. Take him at his word and trust Jesus. Pray with me, Father. We uh, come to you. We thank you that you've made a way. We thank you that you are the God who has provided because, Lord, you know, um, we would never be able to provide it on our own. I pray, Lord, that as we close out this conversation that Jesus was having, um, that we would find truth, we would find freedom, we would find peace. Help us to bring that to our friends and neighbors and loved ones. Uh, may you get all the glory. Help us to point our lives to your glory and your glory alone. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.